Welcome to Split Happens, the Divorce Down Under podcast where we talk about anything and everything family law related. Welcome to another episode of Split Happens, Divorce Down Under podcast with myself, Alex, and my legal colleague, Liza. Liza, I thought we might um, take a break from going through some of the procedural conversations that we've been having about what happens in family law, which is our area of practice, and maybe talk about you know, some of our own experiences as lawyers and perhaps even as non-lawyers if we, if we get on a bit. Um, my question to you is, how on earth did you end up becoming a lawyer in the first place? Why did you choose law? Well, um, does anyone remember uh, there was an 80s film, ki- film clip um, I think it was Sam Brown was the muso and it was a song called Can I Get a Witness? And there was all these chicks dancing around and they all looked like barristers or they were, I don't know if they were meant to be barristers or judges. Either way, and I looked at that film clip dancing around as you do when I was about six or seven and I looked at it and I went, oh, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And then it got me interested in working out what that is. Not, so the, not the dancing around thing. No, not the dancing, um, but just the, I just wanted to dress up um, with the, the robes and the wig and all that sort of stuff. And I, and then over time, I found out what law was all about. And then I found out that you get to argue. And that's something that if you ask my mum, you know, she's, you know, I've just never stopped arguing as a child and I still haven't. So, you know, it was... Really, I think it just sort of found me more than anything else. It was just one of those things. It was divine intervention um, coming down from the from the MTV. Divine um, intervention into the land of the law via MTV. It's that's so. right, pretty much. And that's from a, that's from a really young age, though, to be sort of starting yeah. to think around yep. a legal career. Yeah. So, and my grandmother used to make me watch. Um, well, she'd not make me, but you know, she'd show me shows like Perry Mason and all that sort of stuff where you'd stand up and you'd walk around and convince the jury this and convince the jury that and and just argue a case. And I didn't really know what they were talking about, but I just liked the fact that they were arguing with someone Yeah. and that um, they were all dressed up and they all looked professional. And, and then over time, I, I think I just enjoyed just the challenge of it. It is a very challenging area. Um, and the fact that you're helping someone that may not necessarily have the capacity to help themselves. So it's sort of evolved over time. It's sort of more about assisting people now, but it started out as arguing. Yeah. On your own behalf as a seven-year-old, and then pretty much. So. Gosh. But what about you, Alex? What did? Why did you choose the law? Well, I come from a different part of the planet, and my TV experiences didn't include. I have no idea what that song is that you've referred to. <laughs> I got no idea. The Sam Brown to me was Joe Brown's daughter, um, who is again a 1960s singer. But there was a a guy. Um, John Mortimer, who was a QC, who wrote a series of fantastic books about Rumpole of the Bailey. Oh, I remember and that show. My dad was very much into all of that. My dad was a charter QS, but he'd also se- separately studied law. And he was um, a member of Lincoln's Inn, although he never t- never went to the bar because he was always too busy with family and, and subsequently the tax office and people like that. But that I'd also always had that sort of interest in the law because of that. He had you know books around the place, you know some of Lord Denning's books now. He was you know, a brilliant law lord in his day, you know, the, the 50s, 60s and 70s, and then 
some of his views were thought later on in his life to be a little bit more unpalatable. But still, I read a lot of those books. Um, I would read anything. We lived out in the countryside, and so it wasn't an opportunity to go and grab books from all over the place. Or the, of course, this is a long time before the internet, and, and I, I still remember black and white TV, and only there being three channels. You know, and the third channel was pretty new. So for me, books were a bit of a resource and I got very interested in some of the legal books and I read a lot of those. Um, but I didn't end up going into law until a little bit later. I had a bit of a commercial career first. What was that? Uh, it was all around the universe of credit management, really. Oh. So from chasing people... So you've gone from one riveting area. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So from chasing people from, from, from debts that they owe or companies yeah. and, and looking at insolvent businesses all the way through to, you know divorcing people and unhappy families. So, uh, all the good stuff, you know, it's yeah. all rainbows and unicorns in my professional yep. world. Um, but weirdly, I mean, I moved away from that sort of commercial um, dispute resolution, if you can call it that, uh, towards helping people. Um, once I sort of got my toes in the water of family law, I realised that you could actually, you could make a difference. And this, oh God, this is going to sound very Boy Scout, but it is nice to help people. Hmm. And it is nice to get a, a, a good outcome for somebody who you think is deserving of it. Um, I, I noticed I, you I, say deserving I know, I know, I know, I shouldn't have <laughs> said those, that. But those undeserving types, well, you know, it's well, just an outcome, isn't it? No. We might get on to, to yeah. that in a little bit. But, um, yeah, my pathway to the law was a little bit uh, um, esoteric, but it was always something there that I was sort of going to get get around to at some point, but I got a little bit diverted with, you know, with pubs and cars and other careers and girlfriends and, you know, things like that. Um and here we are now. And then, of course, I changed countries entirely and then had to sort of um, brush up my UK qualifications to switch them over to Australian. And uh, that, was, that was actually quite a lot of fun, actually, spending a few months or a year or so over at Bongini doing swap-over courses and things like that. And yeah, because there's a couple of courses that you have to do, isn't it? There's the property... There's a bit something different with the property one and there's constitutional and... Yeah, well, well that's right. We don't. We don't. I don't. I do these days. I do have a written constitution because <laughs> I'm an Australian citizen and a British citizen. Um, there isn't a written constitution in the UK, and if there was, the first thing I would do is to say, get rid of the monarchy, which might be a bit controversial, <laughs> but, but there you go. Um, so you didn't watch the coronation? Uh, only to throw rotten eggs at the television <laughs> screen. Uh, no, no, I, I tried to get it off. Um, we have a bit of a group chat amongst our family, and I'm, I'm the one that sends sort of memes of, of you know, King Juggies and all of that sort yeah. of stuff. So I'm not, I'm not a fan. A fan. I don't. It'll sound strange. I don't necessarily hold any grudge against the individuals, but as an institution, I think we're a bit beyond that. I think you know the, you know the, the planet's been around for four and a half billion years, and if the best way you can decide who is the head of state is because they were born to be the head of state, then there's something a bit lacking. But I didn't mean to get into the the monarchy and the republican that's thing. That's all right. Um, but yeah, how do we get a constitutional that's law? Right, yes, constitutional that's right. law. That's why I, so I couldn't stand constitutional law. So con no. I quite liked it oh actually. Oh God, it too many words. No, it was no. Well, because for me it was it, Not was, practical it was different. Mm. In my um, my degree in England, I did my law degree in England, we at the time had to, uh, this is now utterly redundant, of course, because of Brexit, but I had to study a lot of European law. Oh. You know, because it was, you know, the, the EC law was uh, impacting heavily on the UK and it was the, at the time, it was then taking precedence over the UK law where there was a conflict. Now, if you want to fall asleep on an afternoon stroke evening lecture, I thoroughly recommend studying European constitutional law. That was very difficult to keep my eyes open doing that um, as part of my degree. Goodness me. It was a lovely lecturer, just the most incredibly dull topic. Mm. Just imagine you know, you, 
you know, hundreds and thousands of bureaucrats coming together and writing laws that nobody needs about things that are utterly irrelevant in most, most places. Yeah, that was fascinating. Um, yeah, constitutional law in Australian terms, I had to do that. And, of course, some of the practices and procedures were different. So doing a, a criminal practice and a civil um, evidence, well, not evidence, but procedures, they're different. I mean, they're different state to state, but, you know, I'd been using the, you know, England, English and Wales, you know, practices and, and legal processes, which are very, very similar, all common law based. Um, and then with the statutory background. So there was just learning the different rules, the UCPR, the Uniform Civil Procedure Rules here and things like that. Um, and then trust account and bookkeeping, you know, s- silly little things like that, just to sort of tick off what they call the priestly 11 here when you switch That's over. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Um, I, I do remember because I spent a, f- a few incredibly dull months um, covering a friend in conveyancing in the UK back a, a long time ago. And then when I moved over here, sort of in the early mid-2000s, I was doing these conversion courses at university and realised that people physically attended property settlements. Yeah. And I yep. was, it took my breath away. I thought the lecturer was having me on. And I kept putting my hand up saying, no, no, what do you mean get bank checks and go to a settlement yeah. place? You can't well, sit no, across the table from one another and you exchange I thought this was bizarre. And, yeah. you know, a decade before, you know, I'd been just picking up the phone and just doing, yeah, that's it, contracts exchanged, the money's gone by TT, yep, all good, done, thanks very much then, next. Nope. No, and so that was quite strange. So that, that was, you know, an example of the kind of the changes in processes and protocols. Whereas like real estate law here in Queensland, particularly with the you know the nature of indefeasible title and so on, that was a little bit different too. The Torrens title system in um, in the old Dart, I had uh, in that conveyancing universe. Sometimes I would get a deed packet in that would have deeds going back hundreds well of years. Well, that's like in New South Wales with the old systems title. Yeah, so yeah. Now, go, like go back to New South Wales and then roll it back before New South Wales was. Mm. And you've got some of those title documents were incredibly arcane and you're having to sort of trace title through those, which was sort of interesting from a historical point of view, if you like history, which I do. Um, probably I should have become a historian rather than a lawyer, but you never know. That's always Maybe that's career number three. Yeah, well, I, I don't touch... I've, I refuse to touch conveyancing as as I can throw it because I had um, oh, in my early I think I was only about a year out as being a solicitor and I decided to order a pest report on a vacant block of land because <laughs> my understanding of pest reports was things like kangaroos rabbits not termites and things like that so so I don't touch I don't have anything to do with conveyancing I try to steer well away from it kind of um, makes sense though the pest report could, could, oh, it it could mean anything doesn't it, it but could. I, it's just like um, oh, well, you it's know, that I knowledge if you don't know it you don't know it and when you go through and you do your studies a lot of the time it's it's meant to be practical legal training but it's still you're still reading it out of a book yeah and you're not really understanding and you know i went straight from high school to uni and so i was 23 um advising people on some contracts and you know purchasing property and things like that and i'm thinking what is what is all of this about? Like I, all, the words didn't mean anything because I'd never experienced it myself, so I didn't have that life experience. So I feel that, you know, fast fast track 20, 20 odd years. Well, of course, I'm feeling a little bit more confident, but I still I'm just not interested in conveyancing all that sort of stuff. No, it, it's just one of those necessary evils. But I mean, we as a firm we maintain connections with specialist conveyancers, so yeah. it's, we always refer people on where it's appropriate and. Um, I suppose we will still do the odd little bit. We had the odd titles of um, documents coming across our desks from time to time still. 
So that's that's sort of how um, I drifted into the law and, and then drifted you know into family law and then practiced in Australia and so that's sort of how I got here. Um, so you did some contract law in your early days. Did you do any other kind of areas of yeah, law? Yeah, so I've I've done it all but um, employment law. So I started off doing general practice, you know, conveyancing, crime. Yeah. I remember my first my first day, I was like probably my second day and I wasn't even admitted as a lawyer at that point and I got told I'm the RTA prosecutor and had to rock up to <laughs> the local magistrate's court and um, well, the New South Wales, it's the local court. And I didn't even, I brought a notepad and a pen and I didn't really know what I was actually meant to be doing. And the boss came along with about 80 briefs and said, here you go, sat it down on the, at the bar table, said, you've got to go through these and all these breach notices for overloaded trucks. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing and what I was meant to do. And and the magistrate clearly didn't know. And he was a lovely magistrate, um, Malcolm McPherson. I'm going to shout him out because he's you know been a big mentor in my life. And anyway, and he called me into, you know, he worked out pretty quickly that I had no clue. He called me into his chambers, pretty much said, oh, we're, we're going to adjourn, Miss Fribble. Well, can I see you, please, in my chambers? I'm like, oh, shit, you know, like... <laughs> Day, you know, I, it's pro- probably going to be the shortest career ever in law. I struck out before I've been admitted. So, yeah. And um, anyway, and he said to me, he said, oh, do you know anything about trucks? And I said, not really. And he said, do you know what an axle is? I said, apart from Axel Rose, no, I have absolutely no idea. So anyway, he, he asked for his, my notepad and pen. I gave it to him. He drew me a truck. And then he started saying, right, these are where the axles are and this is what I need to know and you're going to find that. You know, and he just took me through it. And it was just amazing that sort of su- level of support. That is absolutely lovely. It's yeah. really, really nice yeah. and good spirit. Is so, it um, but I didn't really last as an RTA prosecutor for very long. I wasn't particularly interested in cars and trucks and, and whatever else. But I've, you know, when I went to the, I, I, I've always practiced in family and civil litigation and insolvency and things like that, estate litigation, um, even personal injury. But I went to the bar in 2010. Yeah. And, um, and by going to the bar in this context, you mean become, you became a barrister? Yes, because I'm still going to the still bar. You're still going to the bar. Just that, a that's a one. frequent thing <laughs> in the <laughs> just office. Just a different one. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I went, uh, I was at the bar in Sydney and um, I was doing a range of different matters, mainly family law, estate litigation, and personal injury. Yep. I had dabbled in a bit of crime, had a few jury trials. That was always a bit of fun. Um, but then, you know, um, kids, family, all that sort of stuff comes along and. Yeah. You go for a work-life balance, which has seen me up on the Gold Coast yeah, and, and I mean, back in practice well, as a solicitor. Well, the work-life balance things become more and more important. When I um, I was working for a firm, uh, doing all sorts of things, a bit like you were saying there, you know, a, a bit of crime, a little bit of ci- well, a lot of civil lit, um, some family law, and wills and estates, litigation around anything really and everything. But then when um, our children came along, they, they were very young and I realised I wasn't really seeing very much of them because I'm glued to my chair in the office or I'm in a court somewhere. So I moved into sole practice whilst they were very young so I could be massively flexible mm. with my time. So I spent a huge amount of time with them. That was a big driver for me. And then you reach a point when, you know, when at the time, I think my, my six-year-old as he was then, my youngest, he, he was shooing me away. You don't need to be sort of coming into school and, and seeing me in my classroom anymore. And he's like... Go away. Right, I thought, right, the separation thing's done here. I'm going to yep. go and sort of work with people again rather than just um, doing my own thing. And I, that's, I really that's enjoyed the that. hard thing, isn't it, when, you, when you're working, you've got young kids. And I remember with, with um, my eldest, he was, he was only a baby and I used to just pop him on the floor in chambers in my room and 
you know, I'd have – and sometimes if I had a client or a solicitor come in, um, I'd just pop him under the desk and I'd be on a little bassinet and just <laughs> tap my foot away, just be rocking away, just quietly just under there. No one would you know. drill some air holes in there? No one <laughs> – <laughs> no one knew any different. So that's uh, that's these things you do. Yeah. I mean, one of the weird things – we've said this, I think, before about COVID and the pandemic and how that's made everybody look about their working patterns. You realise that you really can do – huge amounts that work better with your family set up these days and mm. it's a good idea to do that and if it can keep people in the profession longer then that's a good thing because it is it can be a very stressful occupation being a lawyer and you know there's a lot of um, mental health type issues I don't want to get too dark and dingy with it mm. but sometimes people find it a bit overwhelming and they walk away from the profession yeah. it's much better if you can get that work-life balance going and figure it out for yourself really um, I know that's what you did and certainly what I did and I wouldn't be comfortable working in a place that didn't support that family work. Yeah, no, we're, family we're very balance. lucky. I've I've been this morning even, you know, typing submissions away in a in a car park at my, at my son's school. Oh, so, how, how lucky you are! Yeah, I, I'm very lucky to have that <laughs> flexibility. I know, and, and of course we now live in this world of smartphones and dumb operations yeah. for the most part. Where I, I was putting together some some document this morning at about seven o'clock. I'm also sort of got my eye on sort of football things going on on the other side of the planet and typing this thing on my phone, thinking, "Is yeah, really work life balance? You idiot, win." Just <laughs> <laughs> so m- maybe I need to sort of be more restrictive. I'm, I'm trying harder not to um, follow you know, the the monster that is your email or notification. So I switch yeah. those things off outside of hours now because yeah. it becomes overwhelming otherwise, and there's no downtime. I turn them off most of the time. Yeah. Plus, I have endless football or things to get to, whether it's taxiing the boys there mm. or you know, even recently myself sort of playing a game, which is not why I'm suffering with a twisted knee at the moment. Um, oh, that didn't take long. No, it didn't, did How it? How many games did you get in? Uh, three, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the obsession still is there and um, I'll, be, I'll be coming back just as soon as the knee heals up in about five years' time. So... <laughs> Arban Legal is proud to sponsor Split Happens. You'll be in safe hands with Arban Legal. For all your family law needs, call us on 07 or visit our website at arbanlegal.com.au. Thinking about the, your life in the law then, what do you? Th- what would you think your worst case, or, or, or I don't know, not necessarily the worst case you've ever had, or perhaps the most most trying case, most trying or yeah, difficult so, cases. Yeah. So there's been a few, and I would say that out of all the different areas of law, I found that um, family law does produce the most trying cases. They're they're the ones that, uh, and the benchmark for me is where you know. We're all, you know, people. When you speak to a lawyer, they go, "Oh, it's just a job." We try and try and differentiate what our job is from how we're feeling, and and taking that, um, whether it be a win or a loss, or that emotional baggage on board. And I think um, the one of the worst cases for me was um, a case whereby, um, and it was actually only it wasn't that long ago, um, and the mother would had her children taken off her. Um, after a trial and she was making steps. She was, you know, she had drug problems. She had mental health issues. Dad wasn't much better, but he probably was the lesser of the two evils. He didn't, he 
he also had drug problems and mental health issues, but he had somehow um, reformed and stayed clean for a bit longer than what she had. Um, and the problem that I found with that particular case was that um, the reason why mum was on those drugs and was um, had those mental health issues was because of the violence that was within that family environment that led her to that situation. So she was trapped in a bit of a cycle. Yeah, anyway. and then she becomes the one that is the baddie out of the two. You know, the, the, when you're talking about a goodie and a bad, like that's how I try and break it down and explain it to clients because the court's going to find the goodie and the court's going to find the baddie. Mm. You may not ag- people may, may not agree with it, but there will be a winner and there will be a loser. And in um, in that situation, Mum was the loser, and be- mainly because you know she you know, swore black and blue that, yeah, she was clean, that things were on the mend and that she was on the way up, but she just really wasn't. She wasn't coping. The kids were the ones that were losing out. The kids weren't going to school. Mm. The kids were getting, you know, um, they just were getting bad reports. And, you know, and it's a really hard one because you know deep down that maybe, just maybe, the children are better off with the other party, but you're retained to prosecute to, to you know to go for yeah, put your best foot forward yeah and and really um put mum's position forward and sometimes I sit there and I think you know like you, you you're sort of torn mentally because you feel that you should be upset or not upset but you should be feeling bad but at the same time you sort of think oh maybe it's not so bad and, and whether or not that is something that is just myself trying to um justify what has happened or if it's a case of that's just the way it is you know but I think that's probably one of the worst cases and and it's really sad when you know the court says okay from six o'clock this afternoon um mum is to deliver you know the kids are to be delivered to the court and then dad will take them from there that's really tough and sitting down with your client must have been heartbreaking um it was it was not fun and I think that um you know and, and it's and because we're human, like as much as people don't necessarily think that Mo- you know, they most think lawyers are, most lawyers are I still d- human, and it does. You know, there are some times where not all of them, where you all, um, you know, it's very difficult to try and separate your own emotion and, or at least not feel the emotion that's being um, felt by your client. So, I'd say that's probably one of the most um, worst sort of cases that I've had, because it's. I don't think anyone really wins in that case. No, no. I, I, you know I'm what I'm like for giving quotations, of course. Ambrose B.S. and yeah. the Devil's Dictionary in litigation, to win is to lose and to lose is a disaster. Mm. And in that case, I mean, it's a direct family disaster for that lady who would have struggled hugely to overcome that. But it may, and this is the difficult job if you're a judge, and they have an incredibly difficult job to do, um, it may well have been in the best interest of the children. That's right. It was just, as you said at the start, the lesser of two evils. Yeah. Tough, and they're really tough cases. They are. Parenting and, and the other thing is that you just don't you don't know who's telling the truth. You're only going by what your client instructs and you're only going by what some someone else wrote on a piece of paper, whether it be a school teacher or something like that. And you don't know what's happening in real life and you don't know what's happening behind closed doors. So... It's very difficult to try and make those judgment calls and think, okay, are we doing the right thing here or are we, or are we not doing the right thing? But fortunately, I'm not the judge and that's why I would never be a judge. No, no, it's not something that really I aspire to or ever have for that reason. 
for no reason. What about you, Alex? What what sort of what would be your worst day uh, um, on the law in the law? A worst day in the law, or uh, a worst type of case, or well, I'll, I'll, there's a couple of things. Then I'll, going back to the to the old Dartners, I, I won't say his name, but mm. I was in Clerkenwell County Court in London um, when the deputy county court judge um, made the solicitor. Uh, that was a, that was accompanying me. Cry, he was so vile and rude. And that was in chambers, in a chambers mm-hmm. hearing. Uh, right, so we're all sort of sitting around a big table in this in the judge's office, uh, otherwise known as chambers. And he was absolutely vile. I've never seen anybody be so purposefully rude, apart, apart from a Brisbane barrister whose name I shall not mention. <laughs> but she was perhaps the rudest person I've, I've ever I met. I think I know who you're talking about. I there. shan't say that person's name. I would never pray for in a thousand years, however good she might be or not. Uh, but so that was really confronting. I, I was fortunate. I mean, these things sort of do bounce off me a little bit, but it was really um, confronting for that that young lady. She was very, very upset, and I don't know that it would have, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, whether it would have led to her sort of changing her career path in the future. But that was pretty horrible. Um, best case and worst case would be the same case for me. It goes back about a decade now, and I was involved in this uh, property and parenting, nearly all about the parenting of um, a young child who was experiencing some significant and serious developmental delays, and they were um, they were they were real. The father, unfortunately, thought that had perceived the position that there could be nothing wrong, and you know, he's my son, everything's great. I'm ignoring this. This isn't real. This is nonsense. You're making this all up. It was very real. And because of the father's resistance to mum trying to get some help for this little child, the longer you leave things like that, there is a thing, neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to adapt and change. It gets tougher the older a child gets. So you you know how long legal cases take. Mm. This one dragged on through the courts for two to three years before we finally got uh, an outcome. Uh, The outcome was, again, like the best day because it was really what we wanted. We had to overcome a, a family report that was written against us. I, said we had a, I had a very um, a good friend of mine who was the barrister on that case, and we really did cover all of the bases and got a very good outcome, but the most disappointing and saddest part of it was that it was so desperately unnecessary because of the lack of insight of one of the parents of this child, mm. and they just perceived it as a battle, an attack against them, whereas it really wasn't. It was all about trying to get the best outcome for this little boy. And ev- but because we have shared parental responsibility... Every time that mum would try to get him into appointments and see people, the father would block it, would cancel it, and it was just the most frustrating case. Well, and the only one that's going to, you know, lose out there, the main one that loses is the child there. That's right, that's and right. He's he, not he, getting the help he needs. Who ended up living with mum, and then the father later on, uh, I gather because I keep in touch with mum, um, he's disappeared off anyway. He's gone elsewhere, and it's very, very annoying <laughs> that she Do had to go through all of that. Do you ever keep in touch with your clients afterwards? I do, some yeah. of them, yeah. 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 Not all. <laughs> not all of <laughs> no, them. Not all of them want to, want not, to talk not to Not everybody again. wants to sort of um, <laughs> relive those worst <laughs> moments in their life, but yeah. yeah, I keep in touch with a few. Yeah. Um, it's nice um, to hear from them, I think, to see how they're going. All those follow-up stories sometimes. Yeah, I, I actually met that, uh, that lady and the little boy um, about three years afterwards as well to see how th- things were going, and it was tough. Mm. It was tough, and you know, the little boy was living with mum he needed a huge amount of support and I often wonder whether you know if the court had been quicker in stamping down on the father's you know 
pig-headedness, I suppose. Whether that would have made a difference, I, I suspect it may have done. But he's, as lawyers, we have what we have in front of us, and yeah. we did everything we could, and we got the yeah. best outcome. It just took so wretchedly long. And that's so the that thing, was too. frustrating. Like there's, there's a couple, well, you and I both have matters, and you're probably f- are familiar with a couple of mine at the moment, where these clients have been in the court system for so long, and a lot of the time parties will use the application process as just a way of continuing that control, continuing oh, yeah. that... Especially you know, if there's a financial imbalance. One oh. person can afford to be yep. paying their lawyers, come on, get, drag her or him back into court again, yep. and you know, your client doesn't have any money, and, and eventually they, they say, I can't fight it anymore. That's right. And um, we were lucky enough, about 12 months ago, there was a matter in, before one of the judges in Brisbane, and he was able to see, and he, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, if this case is just a continuation of control and abuse... I'm going to be keeping my eye on on you for that because, it you know, all the family reports, all the evidence, all was pointed in favour of mum um, mm. and my lady, but um, my client. Um, but no, he just kept persisting and kept. And fortunately, he ended up um, buckling on the day. But the thing is that, you know, it was about three, four years of hell. And hell and huge expense. Cost, yep. And I often say to clients that it's not just about the financial expense, the emotional drain yep. upon people. And it's you and it's your family, it's your friends, it's your support network because you're talking to all of these people. They might not want to talk to you very much if you do. It's no, all, they you, just want to wait till, we, wait till you're over that part of your life. It's the first thing you think about when you wake up and it's the last thing you think about when you go yep. to sleep. Mm. And it leads to all sorts of other problems. So getting things settled is usually a very good idea. But yeah, my, my best case and worst case was probably the same case, ironically. Um, mm. the, the right outcome, but very frustrating at the same time. Yeah. But that that case was characterised as well by the very um, oppositional nature of the solicitors on the other side. So that my question is, you know, who's been your worst opponent? Or what would be, or rather than naming names, mm. the worst type of opponent that you've maybe ever had to deal with Do by you know opponent, what? other solicitors and barristers? Um, someone who is confident, who doesn't really know what they're talking about, is my worst type of opponent. Um, so sometimes a self-represented person may not actually be my worst opponent at all. You know, but And then also sometimes someone who, you know, it might be, I might have a silk that's opposed to me, but by which you I mean a QC a or QC, a, K- a KC, a KC. Yeah, as you have KC to say. in the Sunshine Band, exactly or SC as it was. Uh, yeah, so in New South Wales, um, we'll still have SC um, as well. Um, but I would often prefer someone who actually knows what they're talking about to be my opponent rather than because the worst type of opponent is the one who has the potential to not just you know I, I'm not concerned about them. Um, you know, trying to pull the wool over my eyes, but I'm more concerned about them leading the court, potentially leading the court into error. Yeah. Um, because there's always a chance that doesn't matter what you say, um, that the court may in fact just believe or, or accept the submission by the other party, no matter how ridiculous it sounds. So um, there's that is my probably my my worst time. So when you can kind of think there's a bit of a knowledge gap here. Yeah, and he or she doesn't dangerous. actually understand. Very but they're dangerous. S- they're just standing on a position. Well, that's like I my one recently um, where the uh, the solicitor on the other side just woefully incompetent, and I'm not going to name names, but it's cost my client 
thousands and thousands, I mean tens of thousands of dollars in having to deal with it and then, you know, there's no no re- no there's compensation. No payback really. So I mean, it's like cost orders are rarely made and we'll talk about that probably in another podcast, but but there are, there are people unfortunately there are solicitors out there that do have their own little agenda. They whether it be political or personal or whatever it may be and unfortunately um, they're the ones that and particularly those that are out there beating their chest um, they're the most dangerous I'll I'll take an aggressive arrogant self-represented person as long as they have some merit to their argument any day of the week over someone who just is well off the mark yeah I I think my own preference I'm listening to you talk about the waste of time effort and money that goes into some of these matters my least favourite type of matter is one where the lawyers on the other side have a penchant for writing, you know, 10, 12 mm. page letters. Yeah. And they're usually full of drivel and opinion yep. and insistence. And oftentimes those letters will be sent to the parties directly in the first place. Yeah. And they really give people a bit of a fright. And it's not until they come down and, and sit down with, say, you or me, and I go, hold on, this is just their opinion. Yep. Those are their self-imposed deadlines. You don't have to accept all the things that they say. We as all being know true. what you say about deadlines. <laughs> it's not me. It's not, it's well, not it's me. what you adopt. It's, yeah, well, <laughs> it's a it's theory that we both live by. Another quote, Douglas Adams, you know, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make as they go by. <laughs> but, um, and that can sometimes be appropriate, sometimes not. But those lesser battles that you get into, litigation by correspondence, I just, I roll my eyes and I wonder what the solicitors on the other side are trying to achieve. It's... I understand that that's their client's position, but we're try- our role is to try and get this matter resolved. Mm. Sometimes the cynic in me thinks, probably not too wrongly, that some firms are trying to promulgate to make a case bigger than it ever needs to be. To yeah, it's just fast track it. Yeah, um, I'm, I don't care whether you're supremely confident or otherwise. <laughs> no. that's your that's your client's position. That's we have a different true. one, and I, f- I find it hilarious when I get a letter and they say your client did this, this and this and this and this throughout the relationship and they try and downplay or they try and bolster their side or whatever the case may be. And I'm thinking, what are we arguing over here? We, has anyone actually thought about what is it that we're actually arguing over? Let's, before we get into a fight, yeah. um, are, we, are we actually agreeable to the same things? Are we both saying <laughs> that the property is going to be sold and the process divided and we're just going to work out whether Who gets a it's going to be 50 more or 55%? Be same, yeah. Is that all we're talking about here? Then why do we need to go back into through history? All of that un- unnecessary bile that comes yeah. across in correspondence. So those are the kind of – my heart sinks. There are some firms out there, when I see their letterhead yep. or an email coming from them, my heart sinks a little bit. I think, oh, this is going to cost my client an extra God knows how many hours to get these sort of people to – back off and actually progress the case so that we either go to a mediation or we get in front of a, a, a judicial registrar or a judge, but it's never going to get resolved by these people writing these massively expensive letters. The only comfort I can usually offer my client is that I'm not going to be writing you know, 12-page letters back. Yeah. Only the relevant parts need to be addressed. Well, I, I, um, I'm very forthright and honest now in my correspondence when I get letters like that. I just write back. I actually say to the other party, I'm not going to respond to those those things. It's not going to be helpful and leave it at that. Let's just fast track to the next issue that we actually have to resolve. So I don't I don't enter into that. Well, I, look, I think I'm probably going to wrap up the podcast there. I think we've been rabbiting on about some of our legal experiences there. Um, we might talk a little bit about what we get up to outside of the law on another occasion, but, I mean, 
briefly. I know that you've got young kids and I've got slightly older kids. I don't have a life. <laughs> I podcast, I go to work, I drink um, coffee and wine and that's about it really. I don't really – oh, sorry, yeah, I raise kids. That's just they're, – they're, they're around somewhere. They're they around, they raise yeah. themselves apparently. Yeah, well, that's what they didn't come with manuals. Mine didn't, so you must have been lucky. You've got the kid yeah, 2.0. Yogurt, oh, no, mayonnaise is a complete meal. <laughs> yeah, I, I think actually my eldest has now sort of gravitated thinking aioli might be because it's on mm. absolutely oh, every chip yes, I've ever is. seen. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, so kids and football outside of work for me oh, and the, the occasional bottle of red wine. And by occasional... Occasional mean every every oh. couple of, what, Look, hours? Hours? Yeah. No. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much for listening to Split Happens, uh, the Divorce Down Under podcast. If you have any comments or would like to get in touch, um, please follow the links on our website. Thanks for listening to Split Happens, the Divorce Down Under podcast. If you want to hear more of our episodes, you'll find us wherever you find your podcasts on all good podcasts.